the gathering like this, the church gathering, how do you know if it's been good or not? As you leave, you go, oh, that, was a, that was a really good time this afternoon. Why? What was good about it? What is it that made it good? Well, perhaps you leave going, actually, that was just a bit disappointing. Why? What was it you were expecting to happen that didn't happen? Do you, you see my point? And so our focus is not simply going to be on encountering God in, in our personal lives. It's going to be encountering our God in our corporate life together. And primarily, we're going to talk about what we do when we gather. And of course, there's different answers, aren't there? Some people are satisfied by church if they feel like they have been intellectually satisfied. If they feel like they've learned something, that was great. Because I've learned this thing I didn't know before, and now I feel satisfied. And that's all that we kind of are looking for in church. I just want to learn something new. Can I say, if that is all we're looking for, then I think we're missing something big. In fact, I'm going to argue that is why we have changed the seating um, in this room. Because when you walk into a room and the chairs are in lines facing forward, you are expecting a lecture. Or you're expecting something where you are going to be entertained, where you are an audience member and you are going to, something up is going to happen at the front. And as I've read the Bible, and as Mike and I have talked about this, and as we've wrestled with this, we've come to a pretty clear conviction that church gathering is supposed to be more than that. But I guess other people say, no, actually, it's not so much about learning something. I just want to feel something. If I can leave church having experienced something, if I kind of was moved, or if I got excited, or if I... You know, something happened. It's an intangible thing. We're not sure what it is, but what we're looking for is an experience. Well, again, I think that there's good in that, but there can also be a danger because we judge it basically on what mood we're in. And if we come to church in a bad mood and we sort of leave and nothing's really happened, we can go, well, that wasn't, that nothing happened. Nothing really happened. <laughs> what if it did? <laughs> But your mood isn't the right way, your experience isn't the right way to gauge exactly what's happened. That's what we're trying to deal with. I'm, we're trying to look into the Bible to see what is it that God says we should be expecting. And so we're going to pray, and then we're going to read um, a small section of the Bible. And we're just going to stay in this one bit. We may well, I need to dot around a bit to explain it. But we're going to stay in this one bit of the Bible, one paragraph, to say, what is it that we're about? So let's pray, and then we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. But let's pray first, and then we'll turn there. Father, please, this afternoon, whatever else is true this afternoon, we pray that we might not treat this as a mere lecture to stimulate our intellect, nor as something simply to make us feel nice, but that we would be hungry for you, that we'd be expectant of you, that we would pursue you. Father, teach us what that means. Teach us how to do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 18 
to 24, but we're going to focus on verses 22 to 24. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Do I need to switch mics? So we... um, right, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All right, we're just going to take that paragraph and say, okay, how does that paragraph change our expectation of what church is all about? You see, when that paragraph was written. It was written to a church that was struggling. It was written to a church that was in trouble. It was a church that had started to follow Jesus, probably from quite a Jewish background. So they were very into Jewish um, ways of life and the traditions and the forms of worship. And then they'd seen that Jesus is the Messiah that they were waiting for, and they turned to him. But since turning to him... It had all got a bit hard and disappointing. You see, the problem is that they discovered that following Jesus, it was hard because there was nothing so much to see. When they were in their temple and they could worship, there was plenty of things physically that they could see and they could, they could experience, they could touch. But actually, the physical has been replaced by the spiritual. And this was a church that was struggling in the now. It was suffering. There was opposition to it. And that opposition was causing them to doubt the sense of their turning to Jesus. It all felt very unfamiliar. And so they're tempted to turn back. Tempted to turn back to what they had before. They say, actually, it was easier before. Let's just go back. And you know what? I think we find ourselves often in a similar position. We may not have come from a Jewish background, but I still think that we can be in danger of prioritizing the physical at the expense of the spiritual. Do you get that? So we prefer what is physical to what is spiritual. It feels more real. We prioritize the temporary at the expense of the eternal. We prioritize the familiar at the expense of the unfamiliar and the easy at the expense of the challenging. Or put that more simply, we like what we see, we like what we have now, we like what we know, and we like what is comfortable. Those are the sorts of things that we love. And all of that makes Jesus hard to follow. This church is feeling the squeeze, and they're beginning to turn back 
turn back to what they see, what they have, what they know, what they like. And this book is written to say, don't turn away from Jesus. You have so much in Jesus. He is so magnificent. He is so much more than you'd ever dreamed. And I haven't got time to summarize the whole of the first 11 chapters. You'll be glad to know. But we do need to let God's word shape our expectations of what God is doing. And so we're going to have a look at this one chapter, this one paragraph from verse 22. And here are seven realities, right? Seven things in this one paragraph. The author just kind of explodes in like, look what you have. This is what you have. And he contrasts it to what you've not come to. So look at how the passage goes. In verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that da-da-da-da-da. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. You've got to know which mountain you've come to. You've not come to the mountain that is blazing with fire. This is the mountain that Mike started our service with this afternoon, Mount Sinai. What are we told about that mountain? We're specifically told, I'm going to move back a bit. We're specifically told it's a mountain that can be touched. Do you see? It's a mountain that can be touched. It's a physical mountain. And it's a mountain that is burning with fire, darkness, gloom, and storm. It's impressive. It, it looks awesome. You've not come to this mountain. You see, this Mount Sinai, which is where God gave the law, is where God said, this is how you must live. That was a place of burden. They could not bear what was commanded. It was terrifying. And so the writer of the Hebrews is saying, you've not come to that mountain. You've not come to a place of law. You've not come to a place of burdening commands. You've not come to a place that will crush you. And so if our experience of church is of a crushing burden, we're not getting it right. That's not the mountain you've come to. You don't live under condemnation. You don't live under rules. You don't live under law. You don't live under the darkness and the gloom and the power of God's awesome judgment. You don't come to that mountain. Now, perhaps not many of us attempted to go back to the Old Testament and to sort of come to the Old Testament and say, oh, let's, let's go back and live there, shall we? Let's go back and keep those laws. But I do still think we find our own Mount Sinai's to go to. The little rules that we have to keep, the, the laws that we have to do, I must do this, I must do this, that become a crushing burden to us. And can I tell you, often church is not an encounter with God because it becomes a crushing burden with guilt. And rather than encountering God, all we leave with is a crushing sense of failure. The writer to the Hebrews says, that's not where you've come. Look where you have come. Here we go, right? We're going to rattle through these super quick seven things. And if my aim this afternoon is that the Holy Spirit would cause your heart to beat faster as you see what we are called to. 
I beg of you this afternoon not to sit there passively, but to engage with this, to listen to this, and to say, is this what you're expecting? Does this match what you're feeling? And if you're sitting there this afternoon and you're drifting off, pray the Spirit would help you to wake up. And if you see someone else drifting off, because look, you can see each other, dangerous. Can I say, if, to honestly, if you do see someone else drifting off, it can be easy to be judgmental. Why not instead think, perhaps they've had a really tough week. Perhaps they're really tired. And why not pray for them and ask for God's grace and help? Right, here we go. Seven things. Are you ready? This is from verse 22. Over and over again, it says, this is what you've come to. You have come to, here's number one, the glorious city. The glorious city. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion. Do we know about Mount Zion? What is Mount Zion? Well, Mount Zion in the Old Testament is the mountain on which Jerusalem is built. That's Mount Zion. It's the dwelling place of God. Not Mount Sinai, where God gave his law, but Mount Zion, where God came to dwell among his people. You do realize, don't you, that the only reason you can encounter God is because God has chosen to make himself encounterable. Right? You can't choose to encounter God unless he first allows you to encounter him. And so the the Bible is the story of God coming to make himself encounterable. I mean, he can't have made it much clearer. He set up a tent called the Tent of Meeting. What more do you want him to do? A big label that goes, you don't go, oh, I wonder what goes on in there. I wonder what happens. It's the place where God meets with his people, the tent of meeting, which became the great temple in Jerusalem, the place where you encounter God, the place where you experience God, the place where you meet with God. And it all happened in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city. And yet, there's something weird about Mount Zion in the Old Testament, in the first part of the Bible. Because Mount Zion wasn't that impressive a mountain, really. It's not particularly high. It's more of a bump. It's more like Primrose Hill. (laughs) It's a bit bigger than Primrose Hill, in fairness. But it's not a massively high mountain. There are much higher mountains in the world, much higher. And yet, the Old Testament says that Zion is exalted. It's lifted up. It's the highest of all mountains. Did the Old Testament just not really be good at measuring mountains? I mean, listen to what it says. This is Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in its loftiness. Really? The joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of her great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. Beautiful in its loftiness. Why? I tell you why. Because the physical Mount Zion of the Old Testament was only ever a picture of something that the psalmist could see beyond it. A spiritual reality. A spiritual Mount Zion. A heavenly city. The city of the living God. 
And the problem is that we get it the wrong way around. We think that what is physical is real and what is spiritual is less real. What is physical is solid and what is spiritual is shadowy. But the Bible flips it around. The physical world we live in is just like a shadow that points us forward to the real reality. The physical Jerusalem was always pointing beyond itself to something more. And so you have come, you have come to the heavenly city, to Mount Zion, the the greatest of all mountains, the most lofty, beautiful, stunning mountain, the city of the living God. That's where you've come. You see, the Bible says over and over again that God is the living God. He's not dead. This is not a city that you would go and look around its ruins. I went to Petra once. Anyone else been to Petra? Yes, one or two. Petra is a dead city. It's beautiful. It's extraordinary. And Indiana Jones flew down its great treasury thing. But it's a dead city. You have to pay a load of money to get in. No one lives there and everyone has to leave at the end. You can imagine what it was like once, but it's dead. But the city that we've come to is the heavenly city, the city of the living God, a city that's bursting with life, a city that is secure, a city that's in heaven. Look, right now, right now, you have come to this city. We tend to think of heaven as something you get in the future, right? One day in the future, we'll all go to heaven when we die. But the writer to Hebrews says, no, it's now. You've come to that city. That is your home. That is where you belong. That's your security. The trouble is we can't see it now. And so we feel weak and small. So if we forget this glorious city, this glorious reality, then church will become dull, right? If you find church dull and boring, it's because you have lost sight of the great, heavenly, glorious Mount Zion. And on the day when you see it with your own eyes, you'll go, oh, wow, that's what this was all about. That's what we were doing. But we need the eyes of faith to see what is going on in this world. We need the eyes of faith to see the city, the beautiful city where God dwells. And one day we'll be there. But right now, we've come to that city. Let me carry on. I hope hope you'll you'll see how this, this all works. Look at the second thing. We've come to joyful angels. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. (laughs) What a phrase. Angels are joyful. Do you believe in angels? I know we're supposed to. I know you're sort of going, well, probably, I don't know, Mary and Joseph and all that stuff. Do you believe that there are thousands upon thousands of angels right now? Sometimes we find it hard to believe, right? Sometimes we sit here and it feels so distant and we think, angels, really? But if you lose sight of the reality of heaven and the joyful assembly of angels, then church is going to become flat and miserable. And joyless. 
The angels of heaven are singing right now. Right now. Thousands upon thousands. Can you imagine hearing that noise? Can you imagine one snippet of the angelic song? It's singing now. And when we stand to sing, and when we open our mouths to sing, we are joining our voices with thousands upon thousands of angels who are singing. And if we forget it, then we will become joyless. And perhaps sometimes we look around and we listen to our singing, and although our musicians are great, perhaps we think to ourselves, this singing, oh, I don't know if this singing is really all that. I'd love if we could sing it more. Sometimes we just don't feel like singing, and sometimes we stand, right? You know, we don't really sing particularly excitedly. I sometimes wonder if we could go and see the angels. I wonder if they ever stop and go, what are they doing? What is that miserable singing? Do they not know? If only they could see what we see. To think that they would stand and... Can you imagine an angel doing that in the presence of God? But you've come to the joyful assembly of angels. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I'm not saying that we need to whip up some fake emotion. But I wonder if we need to borrow a bit of heaven's joy. Because there are days when I don't feel joyful, right? And there are days when you don't feel joyful. You don't want to sing. I get that. I have days I don't want to sing. But on those days, you have to remember that the angels are still singing. The angels are still worshiping God. They're still singing in praise of his name. And therefore, you sing and you say, angels, I'm going to borrow some of your joy. Give me some of your joy. You've come to the joyful angels. Thirdly, you've come to the one true church. So this is verse 23. You've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to the church of the firstborn. That isn't one little sect in you know, America. Which church are we the church of the firstborn? Oh, great. Well, I think we should change our name. I mean, look, it tells us what we're supposed to be called, the church of the firstborn. Actually, what it's saying is that there is one church, the church of the firstborn. And yes, we are one expression of that. The globe church is like a little expression, but don't ever think that we're the church. We're a tiny fragment of the great church of the firstborn. Why called church of the firstborn? Well, Jesus is the great firstborn, right? Hebrews has been making that point right from the beginning. Jesus is not just an angel. He's not some angelic being. He is the firstborn son of God. Not firstborn as in born into existence, but firstborn as in right and authority and position and status because the firstborn has all the rights of the family. And so here is the firstborn, Jesus, the one who has equal authority with his father. It's how 
the book of Hebrews starts. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. He is the exact radiance of the likeness of God. You've come to the church of the firstborn. <laughs> this is cool because I think, I think this name, the church of the firstborn, extends further than just Jesus. I think it's the same name that everybody in the church then gets. You all become firstborns. All of you, your names are written in heaven. So as you come to church this afternoon, there aren't some who are firstborn and then some who are secondborn and some who are thirdborn. There are only firstborns. If you're the youngest child here, anyone the youngest child in the family? Right, if you're the youngest child in the family, some of it's been a devastating experience, right? Here's the good news. In the church, you are the firstborn. You are the eldest. You're the most important. You're the one who inherits all things because Jesus has made all of us his brothers and sisters. He's made all of us to share in his firstborn rights as the inheritors of God's promise. You are firstborn. And some of us feel deeply inferior as we come to church. We feel like we don't really belong. Listen to me. If you're trusting Jesus, your name is written in heaven. Your name. Have you ever thought about that? Your name. Right, think about your name right now. It's written somewhere in heaven. I don't know where, but somewhere in heaven, it's written down. Isn't that extraordinary? You have every right to be here this afternoon. If we forget this, then church will become elitist. We'll begin to think that some people are better than others, some churches are better than others. Into eternity, the globe church will not exist, but the church of the firstborn will. And therefore, what matters is not the globe church, what matters is the church. And as we gather together, we're part of that one great joy. Fourth thing, as we gather together, we come to the approachable judge. You have come to God, the judge of all. In some ways, this is one of the most sobering of all of these. As we come... We come to God. You are approaching God. If you've been around church for a while, you go, yeah, well, of course we have. It's a big deal. If you said that to a Jew, to one of the Old Testament Israelites, they'd have gone, you can't, you can't just approach God. You can't come into God's presence. God is too holy. God is too awesome. He's too distinct and different from us. And yet the book of Hebrews says, no, the way to God has been opened. Let us then approach the throne of grace with boldness. Let's draw near to God. You have come to God. This is not just talking about the church gathering, but it definitely is talking about when we get together as a church. We come to God, and he's the judge of all. I think if we forget that, we, we will make church careless. We'll wander into God's presence. We'll think it's all some kind of like, oh, yeah, whatever. 
We'll treat God lightly. We'll treat God as if it's something we just mess around with. Let me tell you, actually, to come near to God is an awesome thing. It's a holy thing. One of the things I've been challenged about this week is, where is the awe? Where is the sense of wonder? Where is the sense of awesomeness of God in our worship? If you look down at um, verse 28 and 29, it says, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See, the reality is you can't just wander into God's presence as if it's no big deal. We're going to take communion in a moment. You can't just take communion as if it doesn't really matter, as if it's no, oh, well, whatever. It, we come to God. Fifthly, we come to the triumphant saints. We come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Um, uh, kind of theologians, people who write kind of stuff about God, they talk about the church triumphant and the church militant. I'm not sure that militant is a particularly lovely word. But the church triumphant is all those who've died, who knew Jesus, who now have gone to be with him. That's the church triumphant. And those of us who are left, we're the church militant. I don't know why we have to be militant, but we are. And, and what we're being told here is that there is a connection between the church, between the spirits of those who've died and us. And some of this stuff is kind of the sort of stuff we kind of go, oh, this is all a bit weird. It's here. It's in the Bible. Therefore, we've got to take hold of this stuff. We join together with all of those who've gone before us. You see, here is someone who is a Christian, and they're struggling, and it's hard, right? And they're living their life, and they sometimes fail, and they sometimes mess up, but Jesus forgives them. And here they are, living their life, living their life, and then they die, and their spirit goes to be with Jesus and is perfected, made perfect. And the battle is over, and the struggle is over, and now they're with Jesus, and they are righteous. Their body is in the grave. Their spirit is with Jesus, and they are righteous. That is the church triumphant. Waiting the day when Jesus returns and their body is raised and their body and spirit are raised to be with him forever. But here's what I want you to see, that that church triumphant really matters for us today because when we come, we come to them. We come to join with them who've gone before us. If we forget this, we will find church to be small. So we look around and we say, oh, it's all a bit small, isn't it, church? There aren't many of us, and London seems so huge, and we're so tiny, you know, what can we possibly do? I think the church is even smaller than ours. Perhaps there's just four or five people in a church, and they're gathering each Sunday, and they feel a bit miserable. They need to lift up their eyes and see that they are coming to the spirits of the righteous who've been made perfect. Then it doesn't look so small. How many people came to Globe Church today? Oh, several billion. There was about a billion of us. Difficult to say exactly. 
fact, I'd go so far as to say it's probably a number I can't even count. But there was a lot of us. How did you find a building so big? Actually, it was quite easy. Only 200 of them needed chairs, so we were all right. But this sort of a perspective helps us to see. This is what Hebrews has been helping the church to see. Hebrews chapter 11 has been a whole chapter full of people who've gone before, who've run the race, who've died, who are now in that city, that heavenly city, that Mount Zion, that New Jerusalem with God, with the joyful assembly of angels in the presence of God the judge who now know that their names were written forever in the heaven. And we gather with them. Don't forget what we're doing when we gather as a church. It's much bigger than just us. And you come to the perfect mediator. This is verse 24. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You see, when we come to church, you might say, we come to God, the approachable judge. How can we possibly do that? Well, here's the key. You come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. You see, Jesus is the mediator, the one who stands between God and us, the one who mediates. Just as in the Old Testament, it was Moses who stood in the gap between God and the people. Now we have Jesus, and he's better than Moses was because Jesus is the one who came and gave his life for us. So you don't need to be scared when you come to church. You don't have to be worried because you come to Jesus. And Jesus brings you to God. He brings you safely to God. He enables you to stand in the presence of God. Because, and finally, number seven, you come to the precious blood. The precious blood of Jesus. You come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You come to the sprinkled blood of Jesus. See, this is what we're doing. We just don't ever use this.